welcome to Death Holler, the place of haunted hearts and haunted homes. We welcome you to Death Manor, the home that boasts the most ghosts. Come on in. We've been expecting you. Take a look around. You might see someone that you recognize. Do you hear those voices? That's just the Reverend Dr. Death and La Arena. They're so happy to see you. Sit back and relax. Make yourself at home. Your new home. And remember, when you're in Death Holler, listener discretion is always advised. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, Urena, what's been going on in your world? What besides real world horrors that you've been uh, getting into? Oh, you know, not a whole lot. Just uh, trying to get over the horrors of Christmas. It's uh, everywhere. There's a dead tree in our yard. <laughs> There's a dead tree in our house. We got Christmas carcasses everywhere. Yeah, I bet you can't. With your all's regulations, you probably can't even burn the thing, right? And get rid of it. No, that's where you're wrong, sir. Uh, well, we're, I don't know that we're supposed to, but we do. Oh, we live in Northern California. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. It, Northern that's, California that's is where sanity resides in California. We actually had a, my husband tried to burn something, and I guess it was the, the trash or whatever he was burning was a little wet, more wet than he expected. So it ended up just being a huge plume of smoke. And we had a cop just parked out in our front yard, kind of like, should I go check on them? Like, yeah, it was just too. I've do it. I'm so white trash. I've burned a couch in the backyard. Did you really? Yeah. When did you burn the couch? I chainsawed a couch up and then I burned it piece by piece in the oh middle of the God. day. It was pitch black smoke coming from the backyard. I was not present for this. <laughs> Actually, couch burning is a Kentucky tradition after <laughs> the UK game. So, oh God. Yeah. I, the whole time I was burning it, I was burning it to it's like about probably about 45 minutes of burning. You know, the whole time I think it was like. Cops didn't show up any minute now. Sure as shit, he never, never did, never showed up. I was like, whatever, man. As long as we keep it contained, like the cop that was in front of our house, he didn't care that there was smoke everywhere. He was just like, are they okay? Like, yeah, the the wood was just uh, it was too wet and smoldering. <laughs> no, but the couch burning, I was burning it in a fifty five gallon drum that I turned into like a full r- right burn barrel. So I was throwing like huge pieces in that bad boy. It was getting, it was going after it. Oh my god, it gets hot. One time there was flames on the side of my house. It oh, just looked dude. like hell. Case. It was hell. Side in my note: backyard. So me and my buddy were over here drinking beers after i made the burn barrel we were testing it out and we're just stowing stuff in there and it, and it got so high it got as tall as almost as a, at the two-story roof in our house and it happened to be the same time my wife came home and she comes in the backyard and my buddy has a fire hose or uh the water uh water hose and he's just spraying the barrel to try to get the fire to go down a little bit and my wife comes out there so what the fuck are you guys doing nothing yeah, I, no, I was on the second floor looking out, and there was flames just licking the side of the house and the front, you know, my window. And I'm like, I could feel the heat. I opened up the window. I just feel a blast of heat. I'm like, well, okay, we're in hell. It's finally happened. <laughs> That's how you roll. So what's been happening with you, Reverend? Well, I've not watched besides delving, like, totally to down the rabbit hole in this this whole shining thing that we'll get into in the actual episode you went down the rabbit hole (laughs) (laughs) many rabbit holes is the problem on that but uh i did watch color out of space and which is good because it it kind of ties into this a little bit at least the rating i'm going to give something but as far as 
everything else like i, I mainly played uh, some more of that final girl I, I, uh board game i tried the poltergeist box which is completely different than the one i was playing before because you literally can't harm the bad guy in that one where she's a ghost and so you have to basically just continuously try to save idiots that are like investigating the house uh trying to get them out of the house before she kills them uh while searching frantically for carolyn you know carol ann yes and uh once you finally find her assuming that you've met all the criteria like there's there's one card in the deck that if she's missing her little floppier bunny then she won't leave with you so you have to go find that if that's if that card comes out but once you you know do all that then finally you can leave and that's how you win the game but like it came down the last little bit because i mean i i was running out of options and <laughs> barely made it out with her before she uh before she took us both out so that one was uh pretty interesting just because how different it played and um I was just going to give a heads up to anybody who's interested in the game. They do have like a new Kickstarter campaign coming out January 11th. And uh, they sent out what the new boxes are going to be. And Noah's going to be interested in this. Uh, uh, The thing is actually one of the variants that they're going to have in this new box. It's like this abomination and this frozen outpost. And one of the twists of the game is you're trying to save these people but they might be the thing, you know, so That's you've got the, that so that, that. So, such the best story art because everybody's an enemy. That's why that works so good. If you want to see, here's one of the, one of the variants he's played. He got a, I feel like they're not cards. Are they deck of cards or? It's, it's a combination. Like, I mean, if you like in the Kickstarter campaign, they have like miniatures that, that, that represents the monster. And then of course your, your final girls. And then you have like a deck of cards, like for both the location and for the villain. And they, they, they kind of give you, you mix them together and like, you know, and, and it's, and it's random too, because if you only take 10 cards each time, but there's like maybe 30 cards. So it always mixes it up and they kind of give you the parameters like the, you know, suddenly the, the, the building you're in might catch on fire. So you've got to suddenly deal with that. That's one of the location, you know, issues you got to deal with. Yeah. yeah they're calling it a, a necromorph. That's uh, right out of dead space. Uh, that's actually the alien set. There's, okay, there's okay. one yeah. that's like, that's like an alien type setting. And uh, there's another one that's kind of a silent hill. It's it's called Nurse Ratchet or something. And she's, you know, it looks like a character straight out of, you know, Yeah, there's silent different hill. packs of, well, I don't know, characters. The Necromorph one um, looked pretty cool, but the, the, the Fang one, that would be the awesome. That That's always the best when you don't know who the enemies are. Oh, he loves the Fang. They've, it's an awesome. They, like, they've got, I love that movie. It's a good movie. <laughs> It will, and it's also, you know, we might discuss this sometime on the your, the podcast you were mentioning, uh, but it's it's also got, like, Cold War implications and oh, other yeah. things like that. Big but, time. You don't know um, who the Ruskies are. <laughs> um, uh, mass formation psychosis, that's kind of a buzzword right now with all that. But anyways, uh, there's, they got one in there called the Intruders, and I thought that was kind of neat because it's basically the strangers, you know, like a bunch of three people show up to your house with mask on and just invade, and you've got to, you know, survive or whatever. And uh, and then they've got one based on Little Red Riding Hood, but, like, instead of the big bad wolf, it's actually a werewolf. That's Oh, yeah, I saw that so. one, the bad moon. 
Yeah, so uh, I, I, it looks really neat, and I, I want to see how they, they – after seeing how much they changed the game with the Poltergeist box, you know, because it plays completely differently. Like, I even out, uh, outfitted my character from the get-go, which I never am able to do with the, whenever I was playing the Hans version uh, or basically the Jason Voorhees version uh, with, a, like, a shotgun, and I could not use it because it's like you can't attack. It's like you might want to have one in case she possesses somebody, but I never ran across that whenever I was playing her, so I was just like, well, i got to use a shotgun that I'm kind of just toting along that's not really helping me with anything but um so I just think that's that's going to be neat uh, I'm looking forward to backing that one and getting the rest of those and I played another game called Townsfolk Tussle and this one's a little bit different it's kind of a boss battler it's like you're you're, you're playing like these weird and, and the style of it is Cuphead if you've ever played that video oh game, my god my kids about. love that yeah our, our it's, son. it's like it, it's like that old you know 19 20s, 30s, yeah. boop style where like they just, everything moves. Yeah, um, everything's got kind of like a you know, I mean even you know just is alive basically you know, and um, they've got some. The reason I bring it up in a horror podcast is because not only are you trying to kill these like bad guys or whatever, but they've got some horror elements in it. Like one of the characters you can actually play is this former mayor of the town who has basically died from a virus. The virus took over his body made his stomach into like this big giant mouth. And like you go around like just eating stuff constantly. And that that's one of the characters you actually play. Um, there's another character or another bad guy you play in the game, which is basically just an evil scarecrow. And I mean, if you just imagine like the cuphead style, I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, kind of creepy. I mean, if you watch those old Betty Boop specials, they got some creepy stuff in those. So, um, so I, I think that's a pretty neat, you know, game for maybe horror fans and fans of like that old creepy animation to kind of check out. Oh yeah, it's, Bendy and the Ink Machine. Um, definitely Cuphead. Cuphead. Cuphead's a little friendlier though in terms. So this one sounds like it's a mix between Bendy and Cuphead. Yeah, it's it's kind of got a, a good mix, and then they got some you know kind of funny stuff in there. Like one of the characters you can play is kind of the town bully slash asshole that you know. It, one of the things he can do each round, like before you go into the boss battle, is steal from like the peddler that's like selling you stuff or whatever. So um, just just little di different things like that, but. Um, and it's got like the whole cartoon vibe where there's like stuff on the board and like you can trigger it like there's an outhouse and oh whoever God. decides to attack the outhouse, anything within three spaces gets covered in shit and takes damage from it. Including oh. <laughs> Disgusting. Um, but that, that's kind of what it is. You know, I remember watching Betty Boop cartoons. My mom was a huge Betty Boop fan. And I remember one one cartoon in particular with there's back in the day where refrigeration didn't really exist. There was this one where this guy was delivering ice, and he'd start out at the bottom of the building with this giant block of ice. Uh. And by the time he got to Betty Boop's room, which was on the top, <laughs> it'd be an ice cube, and he'd just drop it in a drink. And it was just like all this work for like I, I'm now was just thinking about like how hilarious that is. Oh my god, um, I don't want to brush aside your amazing games, but. And I don't mean to brag, but the family and I played Coraline, Beware the Other Mother. <laughs> I hate that game. <laughs> and it was right. like... You got to discuss it. Yes. Okay. So it's... um The, the instructions are not clear at let's, all. Let's start with the rules of the game that are not, <laughs> not clear there. They're not there. any margin. Yeah. There's no how explanation of how to set up. The board is like a, a piece of paper and it's got, at least it's got the rooms printed on it. It's literally just a, a small, tiny poster. 
And we we had to watch a YouTube video because there was no clear directions. At, no, was there bad. was instructions on how to play, and that was it. But it was like, okay, how do we get the characters on the board? Um, and you're supposed to start off with the other mother in one room and Coraline in her room, and then you start pulling cards. And there's every player plays four different things. So they um, they can play a card. They can... You get one action per turn, and your one action can be you can play your card. No, you get four actions. I, I know, but it you can only do one action, one initial yeah. action. So you, you have four options of an action. One action is you can play a card and do what the card says. One, you can burn the card and get one move. One other action is you can burn a card and, and reveal an item in the room, or you can burn a card and pick up an item. So you got to pick one of those actions to do each turn, and then you discharge your card, and then you pick up a Bedlam card, which is a, a counter card. A Beldame or Beldam yeah, card. Yeah, it's a counter card that 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 uh, has a negative consequence on it, and sometimes they don't affect you, and sometimes they hurt you really bad. So and, yeah, and you have the, the ultimate goal of the game is to uh, you have to get to the living room after you've collected all of Coraline's items, which in the movie makes sense. You know, the little seeing eye um, or the seeing stone and the key and the the water globe. Yeah, I think you need to have five out of the six items at a yeah. minimum. Yeah. You have to have certain items, and then you make it to the <laughs> living room, and as long as the other mother isn't in there, you can you can forfeit a card and win a game. No. Oh, no, you have to have the winning card. You have to have the victory card. Yes, the victory card. And the person playing has to have it. So we we won the, f- the first time we all played collectively. It got close. I didn't think we were going to win. Yeah, but it was... Just so horribly put to, the game's horribly put together, honestly. The game sucks by this. So there's a card you have to have to complete the game. It's called a victory card. So it's in the deck. So basically okay. you need to chew through the entire deck. Once you chew through the deck, you can't pull any more cards. Oh, so, yeah. so all there is is bad cards at that point. So the the goal is you, you need to get that victory card out of there. So when you have all the material, all the items you need and you're in the right room, whoever's turn it is, hopefully they have it and they can complete it. Because there's turns like when you pull a Bedlam card, it'll pull some of the items from you and put them back in the rooms that you got them from. And then you need to get back to it. But every time you pull a Bedlam card, it's a, it's a bad card. And then there's this moon that's eclipsing. Oh, it's, yeah. If the moon eclipses, you lose. Yeah. So sometimes you get a Bedlam card, and it and it, you sometimes it'll tell you to turn the moon if there are certain conditions. It doesn't force board. you. It's like you can either do this bad action or you can advance the moon. Yeah, but but, <laughs> but the thing is, if you burn through all your cards and you discharge you them. You kind of have to advance the moon. You have to advance the moon. Yeah, it, it was weird. And then I, it got down to me, and I, the only card I had was the victory card. And fortunately, that was it. We were where we needed to be. We won. Okay, great. But if we hadn't, it's like I just have to keep pulling bad <laughs> cards. See, I, I want to play. I want to play that one game that I got you, uh, Death at the Dive Bar. Yeah. Well, we we probably need to move forward from the games though. But that, yeah, we need to play they're, that one. They're all like horror games. Like, <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, they're to a degree. We're like thirteen minutes into the cold open. <laughs> Whatever. Death at the Dive Bar. I thought it'd be it's so Death at the Dive Bar is basically like Clue, but it takes place at some rundown dive bar where it interacts with the parking lot and everything, and you're trying to figure it out. It's like more of a modern like a think of it as White Trash Clue. <laughs> that's exactly what it is oh my god well should we uh i think i hear people at the door should we let our guest in i think that they've waited long enough all right let's do it
Hello, I am your host, the Reverend Dr. Death, and I would welcome you to Death Holler, but you, dear listener, have always been here. Joining me, as always, is the only entity capable of making Ms. Massey cry, my co-host with the most, La Urena, who is joined by Noah. What's happening in room 237, guys? Uh, Uh. You know what the funny thing is? (laughs) I tell my wife this. That's my tech number at work. That's his employee number. (laughs) That number is so common all the time everywhere. I think it's almost like a sign that I'm destined to an early death. I I swear to God, that number is such a frequent number that pops up. And it was so funny. It's funny every time I watch it because sometimes I forget in uh, that in um, The Shining, the room was 237. And as soon as I see, I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. Well, you, you, well, we'll get into this later, but you know, one of the theories that 237 represents work is like a number. <laughs> so that's funny that that's your work number. So, yeah, destined to work forever. Oh, my God. And I'm the, I'm the evil entity woman in 237. You just found your doom through me. She was hot, but then as time went on, you hey, realized. Hey, 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 okay, we're muting him. That's what happens. So when you take a girl home, she's hot. And then when you wake up, that's what you're getting. Just, just don't look in a mirror. That's yeah. That's the main just don't. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. <laughs> well, if if you didn't know, today we're discussing the most famous haunted horror film of of uh, of modern cinema, or at least the very least, or at the very least, the most analyzed. Um, we're talking about the 1980 Stanley Kubrick classic, The Shinnin. <laughs> don't be contacting Willie when you're using the Shinnin. <laughs> the Shinnin. <laughs> Um, but before we get into uh, get lost in a frozen hedge maze uh, of symbology and hidden meanings within the Overlook Hotel, uh, a bit of podcast business. Um, if you're enjoying the podcast, we would appreciate if you could take the time to like, comment, subscribe on what e- whatever podcast platform you prefer. Uh, it helps us get more visibility on podcast listings and helps us grow. We appreciate everyone who listens and hope you enjoy the show. All work, no play makes the reverend something, something. Go a little crazy. <laughs> Don't mind if I do. Attack of the bees. Oh, God. That's as good timing as so, what that is. Was that, atta- do we need to attack the bees? I'm just kidding. Yes. Oh, hold on. I got music for that. Oh, God. That was not it. <laughs> <laughs> Typical difficulties. Dun, dun, where dun, is? Hold on, dun, we're gonna dun, we're gonna have dun. a little fun right now. We're gonna play. Figure out which one is Attack of the Bees. Oh, no. What is that? What is that? What is it? Oh no! No, not the bees! Not the bees! Ah! I'm losing my eyes. So in this Attack of the Bees, uh, I'm bringing up the movie We Are Still Here, which is a 2015 film uh, from director. Uh, Ted, and I don't know how to pronounce his last name. It's like G Edgen. G, I don't know how to pronounce it. It's G E O G H E G A N. That's not the one with um, Nicole Kidman, is it? It is not. Um, this one is kind of an indie film, uh, kind of done in the same style as The House of the Devil, although not as authentic to the time period. And I wouldn't, and not as good of a film, in my opinion, but uh, it's still interesting. Um, principal players in this one is Barbara Crampton, who plays uh, Anne Sacchetti, who's the grieving mother in the film. Barbara Crampton's been in everything horror-related. Um, I mean, just the name a few, Reanimator, uh, From Beyond, where she plays kind of a, a therapist-turned-sex-crazed uh, dominatrix. Uh, the Puppet Master, uh, You're Next. Uh, and she's in a new movie on the... 
um, Shudder called uh, Jacob's Wife. Um, she's just she's classic horror film actress. Uh, we have Andrew uh, Senesing, uh, uh, who plays Paul Shachetti, uh, who's the sympathetic husband. Um, he's played in a few horror films like Last Exorcism 2, Camera Obscura, um, Terror Trap. We have Lisa Marie playing Mae Lewis, who's a, kind of a hippie psychic in the movie. Um, and she's been in a ton of stuff with uh, Tim Burton, like Mars Attacks, uh, oh. Sleepy Hollow, Ed Wood. She played Vampira in that one. Um, and she was also in The Lords of Salem, which was the probably one of my favorite Rob Zombie films. Uh, we have Larry uh, Fassenden, who plays Jacob Lewis, who's kind of a, who's a hippie as well, but and a friend of Paul. He's played in a ton of like B horror films, uh, Wendigo, Depraved, um, kind of uh, Jacob's Wife. He plays with Barbara Crampton in that one, and uh, we have Monty Markham, who plays Dave McCabe, who's a cre- creepy neighbor. Uh, and the only thing I saw that he'd been in that horror fans might know or might you know, be interested in reborn. But basically the synopsis of this film is that a grieving couple trying to get away from memories of their recently deceased son moved to a small country home. Uh, and, and the mother begins experiencing supernatural phenomena that makes her think that the spirit of her son is trying to communicate with them, but something much darker is residing within the house and making and, and actually causing all the things to happen. Um, it, and it turns out that the spirits of the vengeful prior residents uh, begin claiming the lives of those who enter the home. Um, basically, the gist of it is, I mean, just kind of spoiling the plot of it, like the, the creepy neighbor guy, McCabe, comes over, and he's trying to get them to, uh, he's, he, he's acting like he's welcoming them to the town, and like his, and there's something off from the get-go because it's, it's the, the woman who's with him kind of keeps uh, letting Barbara Crampton know like through her visual cues that like you get out, you know, you need to leave now. And I think like, I've seen this. Barbara Crampton. I, I, well, go ahead. I, I think I've seen this in it. If I remember the entity is like a charred black thing. Yeah, yep. it is. It's, it's great. Yeah. The visual effects are, are, are great as far as like the effects it's creepy of the, as the fuck. burned, like, yeah, I think yeah. you have it. Um, and it's, and it's interesting because it's a kind of a different take on the, the horror, you know, like the haunted house vengeful spirit thing. What's the reason I brought it up on this episode, it kind of goes along with the shining in that respect. But like in this one, it's not so much that like the house or the, the spirits inside of it are wanting to claim the, the lives of the, the couple that's moved in. They're just presented as sacrifices. What, they're, what the, the spirits have been wanting to do for years is kill the townsfolk, including McCabe's, you know, character. Uh, who uh, basically burnt them alive inside the home or, or tried to, and then, uh, you know, as a way, and and that's kind of what every, I think they say 20 or 30 years like this, you know, the house demands a sacrifice. And, uh, you know, and so the ghosts are trying to basically get back at the people who, who cursed them to that, that fate. Um, if I remember, so it's, I, it's a, I, I don't think, I, I thought it was like a foreign movie that was dubbed over in English. Or am I wrong? No, no uh, this one's not. I mean, uh, I'm, you know, because all the actors are, you know, American as far okay. as I'm aware of. And Maybe I'm, I'm thinking something that's similar to this. I, I remember watching this, but it's been like, I want to say it was been like five years, six years ago. It was made in 2015, so. Yeah, it's I, about... I, yeah. I'm trying to remember it. It's, 
the the special effects and the and the way they kind of ramp things up. I mean, it's a good little indie film. Like I said, they tried to go for that 1970s style, which doesn't really. I mean, it, it and and kind of in the vein of The Shining, but like it doesn't really like pull it off as well as like the House of the Devil did was that late seventies, early eighties thing that it went for. So House of the Devil. (laughs) Um, But it does have more action going on. So uh, Urania might, you know, like it slightly better. I mean, it it, it Uh, does have at least, you know, I'll add it to the list of considerations. So we just watched that new Resident Evil movie and the whole time she was losing her mind when we're watching that. Yeah, but I watched it. Yeah, she she told me about that. I, I told her before she went into it that the uh, the scenes, especially with the the flashlight, where it's off and on, off oh, and yeah. on. And oh, I was fight I was us. anticipating that like a heart attack. Okay, I was like, it's gonna happen. And every turn, I was like, it's gonna happen, but it wasn't happening. And then when it finally happened, I was like, I can't take this. Like, I got up and grabbed a cookie. Like, yeah, that, it hurt. <laughs> they, they did a good job of making that movie. That that actually was pretty more representational what i was expecting from the original resident evils well that that's like i was saying with it i mean you can actually sit there and and if you're a fan of the the games you can actually call some of the thing the ways that the plot's going to move forward which some people may or may not appreciate but i mean i think that's a you know proves that the movie tried to stay to you know what it was you know it's a source material but the the strange thing is and i discussed this with urena offline i don't under or off the podcast i don't understand why they why the fans are like you know bitching about this movie so much it's like well i don't really like the monster at the end of it because it looks kind of fake and then like I, I don't really like how they did and i'm just like you're never gonna get a perfect scene for scene representation of this and especially in a movie form you might if it was like a netflix series but you've got to, I mean, it's it's like me, and, and we'll, we can even discuss it when we're, uh, with the movie that we're discussing on this episode. Uh, I, I'm pr- very prepared anymore, like if I'm watching a Stephen King adaptation, that I'm not going to get what the, was in the book. Like, I'm just not going to get it. Like, even if they attempt to do that, they're still going to be missing. I mean, you can't, basically, you can't take the medium and, like, fully translated over you can try but you're going to have to do some changes to get it because it's going from just like you know uh, the written medium to like one that's visual and, and there's certain things that has to be changed up for that well, even- um, and in a video game it's it's visual to visual but at the same time they can't i mean there's no way you can fit that that uh, like a 60 hour or 40 hour game or whatever it is in the like you know a two hour movie you're just well, gonna have to you know concede things yeah and the thing is too is that everyone plays the game differently i know it's kind of standard it's like okay here's the game from this character's view this character's view this character's view so it's pretty standard and what you do as a player is going to be different so you can't sit there and be like well this isn't how i played the game it's not going to be how you played the game and it's funny because online the biggest complaints i had was how Leon was as a character, he, they made him a big old wuss. How Jill was, she wasn't as diligent. And that it kind of mixed up the first and second game a little bit. Like it kind of had elements of both games. And I'm like, one, if I'm playing the video game, Leon's ex- going to be exactly like he was in the movie. No, 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 no. <laughs> it, it, they actually, the the time, the chronological events map. Yes, because, I think they do too. I know, but if you play the game, you understand that the same, like, once you read all the data and all the pieces of paper from both games, you understand that Resident Evil 2 is happening at the same time Resident Evil 1 y- was. Yes, I, I'm so, aware of that, sure, yeah. but these are people that think they've played the games or think that they know, and they're like, I don't like that they did it that way. And I'm like, 
calm down. How was that first Resident movie that ever came out? How was that compared to the game? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Like, I didn't. Yes, the first movie wasn't like the game, but if you don't sit there and compare it the whole time, if you just know that this is like in the universe. Well, it's not even that, but the, the idea of what Raccoon City was supposed to be was a small podunk town on on the edge of collapse. Like it was in this film. Yeah, but if you, if you watch the other movies with, with that one that one Mili Joakovich, it like the, Raccoon City was like a bustling city. Yeah, so it was it, like it, this it, whole... It was, yeah, it was never supposed to be that. Yeah. It was no. supposed to be a decrepit city. That was the whole reason Raccoon well, Umbrella was there. I'm just saying I still enjoyed the film, even though I I could have sat there and been like, well, this isn't like the game at all. It's like, I'm critical about stuff, and I thought they did a good job of pulling it off. Yeah. I love the movie, but I mean, and I and I understand because Leon's my favorite character in the series, and I understand what they're talking about. He's the comic relief for the first part of it, but he actually is one of the few people in the movie that has like a character arc. And goes yeah. from being the bumbling, like, you know, rookie to actually the character you kind of see in the game. It's so, because of what I he experienced, know. he became who he was. Like, he became, he fucking squared up at the end. Yeah, and I don't understand, and, and it actually, in a roundabout way, it actually makes more sense in the game. Because, I mean, you take a rookie cop uh, thrown into this zombie bullshit, him and Claire both would be, I mean, just... You know, I mean, Claire might have had more experience, you know, being the sister to, you know, to Chris. But I mean, you know, you're the first team that goes in the first game are all like these trained, I mean, highly trained. Yeah. yeah I mean, you know, so. And then they, they send in they, the rookies. They, <laughs> and, but then like Leon's just a rookie cop. He's yeah. not trained like, I mean, he, this FBI training or, or, or military training at, at the very least that Chris and some of the others have had. So I don't understand why people like, you know, expect him to be like a, you know, badass right from the get go. He kind of wasn't a game, but he probably shouldn't have been. Um, you know, he should have been probably more freaked out by what was going on than just like, oh, I guess I'm surrounded by zombies. Let me find a yeah, but a little trinket that opens up this museum door that allows me to get out of this, you know, building that I'm in. Hold tight, Reverend. If I plug this in right now, is it gonna wonk the internet up? Why are you trying to plug it in? Because it's because I'm going off of Wi-Fi right now, and that's we're getting some. Okay. You should be able to plug it in. It's gonna take a couple seconds to identify it. Okay, that's fine. But yeah. Okay, I'll clear that out of the audio. Yeah, but but if, if you've watched, if the story arcs are different from the game to the to the actual movie because the movie Leon's a, a like a fucked up rookie like uh like cop cop son's kid type of like doesn't really give a shit too much. He's just doing it to do it. And then, and then, like the video game, no, he's like a top performing guy that did pretty good, and he, he ends up getting transferred. He's a rookie. It's a, it's a little. They both have different story arcs. I like the building of the character, of kind of of all of them. I think they did. I don't think they built anything. Not every not every character got built up, but I, I I don't know. I liked where they went with it. I thought they did a great job. I wasn't a huge game. I did play the first and second games. Obviously, I ended after one of the games when I. Just got too scared. I couldn't play them anymore. <laughs> and um, that's about how I felt watching this film, actually. Um, I will probably 100% never watch it again. It was so scary to me that I was like, I can't. I can't do this. Yeah. But, I mean, going back to the we're still here. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> Slight derail. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we jumped on the Raccoon City here. train. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I, I'm going to give this to... Uh, patent pending Nicolas Cage rating, The Color Out of Space, which I just literally watched because they do have similar kind of like builds in the movie. They both begin a little slow and they don't really have much of a supernatural element, but whenever the supernatural elements or, or events show up, 
things just go off the rails. So it's uh, that's you know kind of my comparison of the two films. What was your opinion um, of Color Out of Space? Because I wanted to like the movie so much, but it was it was it was too much of a build and too much like the story didn't have like any type of arc. I thought it was okay. I mean, if you, I've not read the um, Lovecraft, uh, you know, story that it's based on. So I don't really know like originally how that was, but, and, and there's certain elements that I thought were kind of weird. Like, I don't, you know, like, I mean, it was the Nicholas Cage of it all. Like, I don't know why they had to have like him as a, you know, llama farmer or any of that, you know, shit other than the fact that they got this, you know, weird ass scene where the llamas are all like, you know, jailed together and kind of this monstrous thing like beast. But, um, I don't know. It's like you get to the end of it. I mean, it, it almost kind of reminded me of a Lovecraft story though, the way it ended because Lovecraft stories don't really have much of a resolution. It's like the, you know, everybody kind of like goes insane or, and the one, you know, investigator kind of the, which is the, uh, you know, the guy who's kind of like the water table inspector or whatever in the movie. Uh, the one person who does survive and get out of it. Like they're, they're, they're kind of like mentally, like just, uh, numb now. Like they're like what they've seen is kind of like scarred them for life. So, I mean, there's no, there's no really heroic moments in most Lovecraft stuff. And that's kind of like, you know, why a lot of people gravitate toward that. But I mean, it, it kind of fit in that sense. Yeah. It was, you know, to a, a, degree, a lot but, of out there, sh- you know, shit going into it, but, but the love, but the Lovecraft has always had, had a pretty good about pretty good about the story arc. And that, that one was just like, it didn't seem linear. There was too much moving around and they did, did a horrible, horrible job of it's a Nicholas Cage movie. I, he did a good job. I thought his character was he, he good. good. His character was awesome. He did a good job. Yeah. He went from like regular, just plain Jane person to losing uh, his plain mind. Jane white guy to Nicholas cage. And that's yeah. exactly what you want in a Lovecraft film. I mean, he, you know, he's psycho at the, you know, at the one point there, there was just a lot of things that, that just kind of just the way the story unfolded, it, it they could have did better jobs of tightening it. They probably could have, but there is one thing that I do like about the movie. There, there's like, well, certain little elements of it, like the scene that they have, uh, where Tommy Chong's character, the you know, which is you know, kind of interesting. There's the, it's another little tie between these two movies. He's kind of like the uh, the all-seeing hippie or whatever that kind of realizes what's going on before everybody else. Kind of like some Marie's character, and and we are still here. Um, he's got like this this moment where at the end of it, like they come into his like little uh, shack that he's got, and like there's this like uh, recording that he's done, and it's playing back at like a lower rate, so it's kind of like you know it, it's it's kind of got that creepy like you know warbled you know like slowed down voice, and he's talking about like um, you know the, they're they're everywhere, they're they're all around us, the the you know the doom is upon us that really hit home as far as like a Lovecraft feel. Like there's elements in the movie that really hit the tone. It's just like you said, the the way it's pasted together doesn't necessarily gel the best way. Yeah. Other than that, it, Which I thought is kind it was, of, other than that, I thought it was a good movie that built a decent <laughs> amount of suspense. Thematically, it's kind of funny that it, it kind of just, you know, paste stuff together and doesn't really fit because that's kind of what happens in the movie to most of the creatures. Like they yes. just get combined together by this weird, you know, alien thing oh, into like monsters that don't really fit. That, that part that, that when the son, the, the son and the mom, that part was oh my like, God. yeah, I was like, oh, yeah, that and, was. And throwback, 
to uh, the discussion we previously had, that kid in the movie is actually the kid that plays the young Luke in House on Haunted Hill, the Netflix series. So, oh, really? <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot but, of good, um, really good creepy parts that stood out in the movie, though. Yeah, it's, I mean, overall, it's it's like probably like a six and a half, seven or something. If you're going to rate it on like a, out of a 10, yeah. out of our scale, it's like, you know, maybe like two and a half, three. Uh, it's, it's, it's worth checking out. I mean, for horror, f- especially like Lovecraft fans. I mean, it, it, it has some elements in it that are worth seeing. So for sure. Um, moving on to the major uh, discussion we're going to have the, this uh, on this podcast is uh, the shining, which is a 1980 film uh, directed by Stanley Kubrick uh, composers, Wendy Carlos and Rachel Elkind. Uh, we have principal players in this, of course, Jack Nicholson, who plays Jack Torrance in the movie, uh, who is the antagonist, uh, depending upon which theory you believe about the movie, uh, psycho and recovering alcoholic. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, Jack has uh, uh, been in tons of films. I mean, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, uh, 1989 Batman movie. He was the, one of the first, and some people think the greatest Jokers on, uh, in film, um, as good as it gets. Uh, Chinatown, which is a really good like new film noir type film. Uh, um, a Few Good Men, Wolf, uh, The Witches of Eastwick, where he plays Satan. So Easy Rider. A tie back to the first season. The Easy, Rid- Easy Rider was one of my favorite movies he did. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Easy Rider for sure. He was in in, in that one. You have, did you ever um, see him talk about that? So in the there's a part in the movie where he, because he plays that stuffy lawyer, and uh, I guess in that movie he gets high, and that was the first time he got high in real life. It was on that set. Jane Fonda <laughs> talks about it. And, and like, and, and he talks about it. He says, if you watch it, you can almost tell in real time. It's like he, it, it, it's like a part where they're at the campfire and everything. It's right before he gets beat to death. <laughs> so it's funny you say that because in my mind, something that's always going to stick with me is if I don't know if, if you know who Jim Brewer is, he's comedian. Oh, yeah. Uh, He's in, you know, Half-Baked or whatever is what most people know him from. But he's always got this look about his eyes because the kind of droop that makes him look like he's high. <laughs> and he said when he was working on Saturday Night Live, he was in an elevator, and uh, Jack Nicholson was going to be a, a guest on the show. And he, like, and, and he, he's, and, you know, Brewer's all is, like, starstruck by Nicholson. So, like, he, he's sitting there, and, and Nicholson, you know, gets in the elevator right as uh, Jim Brewer's getting off the elevator. And, uh, you know, and Nicholson makes a point to look at him and says, uh, you look like, or, or you look like how I feel or something like that. <laughs> and then just kind of grins at him. So, <laughs> and, uh, and Brewer telling that story is just great. Cause it just kind of gives you that vibe that you're talking about where, you know, um, Jack Nicholson is 84 <laughs> years old. Yeah. He's, he's up there, man. He's a classic. He's a classic actor though. He had one wife yeah. for a short span of time. And never a wife again after that. That was in the 60s. Only time he ever had a wife, and he has many of kids. <laughs> oh, my God. Pay the kids, um, not the women. Yeah. <laughs> we have uh, Shelley Duvall in the film playing Wendy Torrance, uh, who's the protector, question mark, depending upon the theory that you're putting out there. Uh, she's the put-upon wife and possibly a psycho herself. I mean, yeah. there, even if you don't believe one of the theories that I'm going to bring up, uh, she definitely breaks toward the end of the film uh, in, in a lot of people's views. Um, she, of course, was Olive Oil and Popeye. That's, the, the, and that's all I can see her as. Like when I was like <laughs> every movie she's ever made afterwards, all I think is Olive Oil. 
Oh my god! Like as she m- really, as she much looks like the character though. Yeah, made real. As, as much of a god, good job she did in the movie. It's so hard not to see her as olive oil. I remember her from Fairy Tale Theater. I don't know what that is. It was like a kids show of some sorts, and she told stories. Oh really? Yeah, she wore like this weird costume and told story to kids and. I used to see that at Grandma Bean's house or super early in the morning, and it was annoying as fuck, but I'd watch it, and that's all I remember her from, which is weird because it's not popular by any means. Very till theater. Mm-hmm. It went on for like five years in the 80s or something like that. Was it on like on PBS or something? It, it, that's what I would imagine it to be on, but I don't know what I saw it on at Grandma Bean's house, to be honest. Um, she was also in a movie we've previously mentioned uh, on the podcast, Time Bandits. Uh, she was... Uh, she actually played uh, the one of the character, the two characters that are repeatedly reborn throughout history or whatever. Um, that the, they're kind of like these British, you know, uh, fops or whatever, like these uh, high-ranking you know, elites or whatever that are just kind of, I mean, ridiculous. Um, she uh, was in Roxanne, the Cyrano de Bergerac uh, uh, retail or whatever that had Steve Martin as the title character. Um, as far as uh, horror fans are concerned, besides the The Shining, she was in Casper Beats Wendy. Oh my God! Uh, she, she was in the live action version of Frankenweenie. I saw that. I'm freaking out right now. Like Tim Burton's like live one of his first action? films. It was one of his first yeah. films, like in college, it's wasn't like, it? It's it's a short film. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I can't remember the actor's name off the top of my head, but it's the one of the guys who who was in Home Alone. You know, one of the 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 two thieves or whatever. Daniel that, that Stern. Not, you know. Yeah, Daniel Stern. He plays the dad in that one. Um, we she was in a, a she produced a short lived Showtime anthology called Nightmare Classics, uh, which is like a, based on like a the, an anthology series that like each episode had like was based upon like an older gothic horror novel like Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, mm-hmm. uh, The Haunting of Bly Manor, basically, or The Turn of the Screw. Like she, there was several episodes of that, and it was had fairly good, you know, uh, critic reviews, but it just never caught on. And I was surprised to read this. She was actually the voice of one of the All Real Monsters characters. Oh, uh, my God. Alongside Tim Curry. (laughs) Oh, my God. Hold on. I'm I'm, looking right now. I'm curious which one. She was. Like, ooh, uh, or something. It's it's totally, oh. Aka, Oka. Um, Hold on. I'm going to get a picture real quick. Oh, really? Yep. Yeah, this wasn't a very common oh my character. Oh, God, I loved that show so much. Yeah, she wasn't one of the main ones by any means, but I just thought that was interesting that she was on that. That kind of, I mean, because I, I feel like that was a lot later than most of the stuff that she's most commonly known for. Yeah. Um, We have we have Danny Lloyd playing uh, Danny Torrance in the movie, uh, who's the son. Uh, psychic question mark. I know we'll get into that. I know that's the whole gist of The Shining, but... Uh, I don't know if, I mean, there's theories that, that that's bullshit. Uh, an abused child, question mark. We'll get into that dark theory, too. Um, the only movie that he did besides this that I'm aware of is he played the father of one of the baseball players in Dr. Sleep. He has, like, a short cameo. Uh, Mike Flanagan, who did The Haunting of Hill House, made the sequel to The Shining, Dr. Sleep, based it more, it's like a more of a combination, and we'll discuss this movie next. Uh, or you know, in, 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 in the next episode, but it's like uh, it's like a combination of the the Stephen King book and the movie, 
uh, Kubrick movie, and it's it's kind of interesting that he brought Danny Lloyd back for the, that part. He even mentioned something about he's proud of his son, who's because uh, the character's kind of psychic like Danny is, so it's kind of funny that he's the father of the of the psychic boy in that movie. Oh my god! Um, we have Scatman Crothers who plays Dick Halloran, uh, psychic question mark. We'll get into that. Uh, who's the cook at the Overlook and a piss poor hero. He does absolutely jack all nothing to save anybody. Nothing. And um, I'm sorry, but when he was talking about The Shining, because he's the reason we find out about The Shining, I couldn't help but think about the cunning from Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. And I'm like, that's a fucking, that's a wish list knockoff of The Shining. They're like, we have the cunning. And it was only people of color that had it. <laughs> and it's funny too because he talks about how he shared that uh, uh, with his grandma, I believe it was. Yeah. They, they, they communicated that way. Told you they fucking, uh, Chilling Adventures of Sabrina totally fucking took it from The Shining. Uh, they, they they took a lot from several things. We talked about Rosemary's Baby and several. So oh, I mean, yeah. it wouldn't surprise me if they didn't tap into that. <laughs> uh, he was in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest with Nicholson, and they were actually good friends, and that's how he got into the movie. He Nicholson recommended him. Um, this the, is surprising. He, no, he no, did no, the, the voice the... for Hong Kong Fooey. The black guy? Um, oh, yeah, okay, okay, the black dude. <laughs> yeah. So, N- Nicholson was the one uh, that recommended him for the scene, or for the role. Yeah, the role. yeah, one that got him in the movie. But I just thought it was funny. He played. He was the voice for Hong Kong Fooey. That was who did the voice for that character. I just liked uh, his which, room. He had this smoking hot black girl's posters up. I was like, hell yeah, dude. <laughs> well, there's a lot what? of... You uh, do good to watch yourself. Oh, <laughs> oh, my bad. You just want to keep my opinions to myself then? Yes. <laughs> there, uh, There's a lot of theories about like sexuality and stuff that kind of tie in the movie too, so that might have been intentional. But I was laughing uh, at was, all the pictures of hot, sexy babes behind him. I'm like, you just you don't get that right away from his character. Then you see him in that. But then again, wasn't he in like a hotel? He was in Florida or something vacationing. Yeah, yeah he was at home. Yeah, no, he was vacationing in Florida. Yeah, I, he was. Well, yeah, he was. I think he lives in Florida. Oh, when okay, he's okay. Not at the Overlook, so. Um, he played in the Aristoc- Aristocats, uh, playing uh, Scat Cat, of all things. Um, you know, the animated Disney yeah. film. He, he was in, uh, for horror fans, uh, besides The Shining, he was in Deadly Eyes and Twilight Zone, the movie. Ew. Um, yes, he was the dude that was in the Kick the Can um, um, skit. <laughs> I'm serious. That was That was him, wasn't it? I, it probably was. I I didn't like go farther into where he was at in this. If I remember I'm, that, I'm, if I remember the episode in that Twilight Zone movie, that's that that little skit one was uh, him. He's a traveling guy that goes uh, from um, retirement home to retirement home, like oh, stopping yes, off. That was him, yeah. And he yeah. was the the guy who brought the youth back to. Everybody. Yeah, that was yeah. the one. I know what he, you're talking he's about. He's helping all the old people relive <laughs> the youth that 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 their dementia and just falling apart. He gave him an opportunity to be young just for a little bit and rekindle yeah, it. Yeah, that. That that scene is is a great. I mean that that part of the movie is a really great little you know part uh, anthology of that movie. It's probably one of my favorites. Um, we have uh, Barry Nelson who is uh, playing Stuart Ullman in the movie, uh, manager of the Overlook and possibly an ambassador for the ghosts that reside there. And that's one of the theories that's out there. Um, a, a what for the I'm ghost? Hold on, hold on. Back, a master for the ghost, an ambassador for the ghost. Oh, that okay. time, but that. But that ties in, uh, I mean, it's it's some of the theories and the fact 
uh, he it, it it goes into an alternate ending that wasn't actually that's not available for the movie. That I'll, I'll get into that in the trivia here in a second. But there was actually another ending to the movie. Oh, see, I wasn't um, aware of that. Uh, so the synopsis, and I'm just gonna go over this quick because basically everybody knows The Shining by osmosis at this point. Um, Jack Torrance, uh, a recovering alcoholic and former school teacher, uh, who was fired because of his uh, anger issues. Uh, takes on a job as a caretaker of the Overlook Hotel over the winter months with his wife and son, Wendy and Danny. Uh, the intent is that he can work on his play slash novel, depending upon which version you're talking about. And But slowly, uh, Jack is driven mad by the isolation and possibly by the evil spirits, if depending upon how you, how you view this. Uh, and Danny, who's rumored to have the shine, extrasensory perception, uh, sees and experiences a series of horrific images that foreshadow the death that will result from his father's psychosis. Uh, Wendy and Danny barely escape from the axe-wielding Jack, who is shown to freeze to death in the infamous hedge maze. And we close by showing a picture of the July 4th celebration where Jack was front and center, but it was taken in the 20s, uh, showing that he was always at the hotel, or depending upon how you view it. Um, uh, before we get into this, we can just discuss like versions and other media. Uh, of course, the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror uh, five, which was season six, episode six. What'd you all think of that with uh, groundskeeper Willie? <laughs> <laughs> What's not to think? It was that's a classic in terms of car- like a cartoon version. And I I know that if we because the kids haven't seen The Shining, right? Uh, I, I don't think, think they've seen the movie. Maybe. I think they have. I think I think Nona has. Okay. I feel like if we played The Shiny, if it was the first time, they'd be like, oh, my God, this is from The Simpsons. They wouldn't know <laughs> that The Shining originated, was the first one, and then The Simpsons just did, you know, a, a short little uh, cartoon film of it. <laughs> I think just discussing it, one of my favorite things about it, and I, Noah brought this up, I think, on a prior podcast, is uh, don't contact Willie between four and five. That's Willie's time. Yeah. yeah. I love that line. <laughs> well, the thing is, if you're a, you're a kid, you don't quite understand what that means. If you're an adult, you're like, oh, yeah? It's Willie's time? What's Willie doing? <laughs> What's Willie doing with his Willie? And I love the fact that it's it's not really the isolation of being in Mr. Burns' ho- hotel. It's the fact that there's no beer and there's no uh, TV. Is what oh, God. Homer crazy in that. <laughs> Which was true kind of in that time frame, you know? that that's That was one of the main sources of entertainment. I mean, it started with radio. And then, and then we got TVs in the house, and now we have so much to entertain us. There's no excuse to ever say that you're bored. Well, there's, not that too, yeah. but I mean, the average person back then consumed a lot of alcohol and cigarettes. Oh, I think yeah. that was pretty rampant. <laughs> I mean, your doctor would prescribe you cigarettes when you were pregnant. <laughs> I mean, keep that baby small. <laughs> I mean, yeah. seriously. So if you understand that, like, then you get you get a better context. See, it was actually funny. That was one of the first questions they, I mean, even like they had, I think, in Rosemary's Baby, whenever she was pregnant with the baby, was like, how many drinks can I have? You know, like that was, that was her primary concern when she got pregnant. Well, isn't that a thing in Italy still, too? Or you, I should just say in general in Europe and everything where that you can have like a half a glass of wine and they encourage it daily daily, or something like that or I, once in a while? I think they I think they encourage like a drink of alcohol generally for like heart health, regardless. Like that's well, just like a medical. Well, the big thing too is it. I don't. It's not so much heart health. It causes an autoimmune response when you can consume alcohol. So anytime you have alcohol, what it does, it triggers your white blood cells to do like a, a natural sweep of your of your body, kind of looking for things. 
So if you drink this little bit of alcohol daily, it triggers that natural autoimmune response. So I've been doing it wrong. Uh, well, well, and <laughs> wine, wine in particular, though, because of the grapes and like you know being distilled down, it also has an extra ingredient in it that that's healthy for like arteries and and that sort of thing. And antioxidants. Um, <laughs> yes, the antioxidant part of it. Um, but yeah, that one, uh, the Simpson Treehouse of Horror episode is just, I mean, every, most people know that one. I mean, that's, that's a pretty standard one. Um, it, it was actually the, there's whole scenes like redone completely in the new and ready player one from the shining. It's like one of the major plot points in the movie. It's not in the book, but it's in the movie because I, they wanted to go back and use WB, uh, or Warner brother properties. Uh, they, uh, there's a whole scene where the, the main characters have to go into the overlook and they have to face the ghost in order to get through one of the challenges to be able to, uh, advance in the competition. And, and they take, I mean, they, they digitally rework everything to put the characters in the overlook and, and seeing the Grady twins and, and other things like that. Uh, um, full disclosure, have n- I have not seen Ready Player One. I, I have. think husband I and kids have. Yeah, I want to say it's the second quest they go on. Yeah, it's it's the second one because the first one they're doing a race, I believe yeah. it is, and that's where he learns to go backwards, and that's how he wins it. I have many of intentions of seeing that film. Um, it's, yeah, the, I, the 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 hotel like re uh, redoing the Shining is like it, it's pretty spectacular how they work that in. I mean, it's I'm uh, it's pretty impressive whenever you watch it. And of course, it's been re- it's redone to a certain extent in, in Doctor Sleep, which is the sequel. Uh, we'll get into that when we discuss it. But there's act at the end of the movie, they actually go back to the Overlook, and um, some people are hit or miss on this. Now, I mean, and we'll get into the discussion of that whenever we discuss that or that movie. But I think that they went the right route of instead of trying to make uh, people or digitally try to recreate like Jack Nicholson, they took and it's actually the father from the Haunting of Hill House, the young father. Uh, who's Elliot in the original E.T., yeah. they take him and have him just kind of dress like Jack Torrance and kind of give like, and I mean, he doesn't try to go out of his way to sound like, you know, Jack Nicholson. He just kind of does his own interpretation of it. And a lot of people are kind of like, you know, he's no Jack, and of course he's not. I don't think anybody really could be, but he, it, it's, it's a good enough, you know, uh, stand in that it kind of fits the bill and it also serves a purpose of i mean when you get right down to it the way they had the when the way they did dr sleep it's uh, there i mean uh, spoiler alert dick lives in that version in in the sequel which he clearly dies in this so there, there's got to be i mean it's kind of like there's a twist on it anyways from the get-go so they kind of like you know kind of just do a twisted version of jack Nich- nicholson and shelly duvall and you know kind of go from there I don't know why people um, are so but, hung up on stuff being exactly like it was made originally. Like identical. It doesn't have to be identical. I, I don't know. I, I think a lot of people were like, you know, around this time this came out, uh, you know, some of the Marvel movies were doing some of that crazy shit they were doing, or like having a de-aged, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, Kurt uh, Russell. Mike, no, know, and, Michael and Douglas. Of, and yeah, and so like the, people were expecting that, but you, budgets. I mean, if you can't do it right, don't do it. And I think that's what Mike Flanagan was looking at. He's like, we can't achieve that. Yeah, let's do the best we can uh, going around it. Because if you don't do that, then you get Princess Leia from Rogue One, <laughs> which is a horrible, horrible version of that. Yeah. So, and that, that's terrible. with Disney's own budget too. So I mean, that, what? You know, it was just a it, few seconds. 
Yeah, but they, when you have a like a couple hundred billion dollars of capital, that's true. <laughs> and exactly. then guys online with the computer at the house can reinterpret Redo, it yeah. with a deep fake, and nobody else is involved other than the AI. Like, what's going on there? <laughs> so the dude at home can make a better version than the, a multi-billion-dollar studio. Yeah, obviously, I will blame Kathleen Kennedy for that one. She greenlighted it. It's her fault. That's true. Burner. Um, She's a witch. <laughs> And before I get into the discussion of the actual Shining movie, I, it, it, I, I have to discuss the miniseries, the Stephen King miniseries that came out in the 90s. Um, it stars, uh, the, the, the people who star in that was, uh, the, the Jack was played by Stephen Weber, who I personally know the most from Wings, that, yes. you know, the, the NBC sitcom, uh, which I did not know until I was looking around about this, that was actually part of the, Cheers slash Frasier universe, like it had its own universe way before that was ever a thing. Oh, really? Um, because Frasier, like, yeah, I happened to like the, the other night. I just turned on um, uh, one of those uh, Pluto channels where they play like the same shows like over and over, and it was a Wings channel. And there were just I just happened to see the episode where Frasier Crane and his wife Lilith or whatever her name is were on a plane chartered by you know being you know chartered by Tim Daly and Stephen Weber's characters, and there was, and the whole episode was about Frasier being like this big you know uh, basically fraud or what, and and one of the main characters of the show calling him out on it. And I was just like, and I looked it up, and it like they were all they were all written and directed by the same three guys, like all three shows. Which is kind of interesting. That was, you know, kind of the metaverse before it happened. You know what? It's uh, funny you say that because they all have like a similar feel that Cheers had to a degree. Yeah, kind of the ensemble cast and playing off to like the the relationships more than anything else. Yeah, it's for whatever reason there's this kind of thing that kind of hits like the, there's a similarity between those three different shows. Um. I, I really like Steven Weber as an actor when he shows up and stuff. He's got a charisma to him that that's, you know, I, that's interesting. Um, Wendy is played in the, in the miniseries by Rebecca De Mornay, uh, who's uh, most famous for the hand that rocks the cradle. I remember that. Uh, I was like, I know that name. And uh, Danny is played by a young actor named, or at the time, Cortland Mead, who's uh, one of his biggest claims of fame was he played in the little rascals in 94. Oh my God. Um, um it the the, the miniseries definitely follows king's novels better than the movie um uh, you know it, it's it's not a secret to say that kubrick went out of his way to change things to fit his vision better than what you know than going strictly by the novel and uh king uh hated and i'll bring that up in a minute but king hated the the kubrick movie so much for changing certain elements that that's why he went ahead and, and redid it as a miniseries and uh, like one of the things that they, that they cha he changed back was he shows a more sympathetic Jack before he goes crazy. Like he's not as resentful of Wendy. He treats her better, you know, before the, the, the hotel starts working on him. And honestly, it's the best part about Weber's performance in the movie is you really feel for his version of Jack up until the point that he makes the change. Yeah. The problem with that is, is he's not as good of a villain type actor as Nicholson, and he does not pull off those scenes even a fraction uh, See, as well as Nicholson. I hated that miniseries. Like I know what you're talking about when they did that. And what was nineties or early two thousands? Um, it's early nineties. Yeah. Late nineties. I think actually, wait, wait, wait. No, which one are we talking it. about? The miniseries that they did. The Dr. Shining. Sleep. No, 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 no. Oh. The one he's talking no, about the, right the now. The shining. The okay. Shining. They, they redid it in the nineties. I, I don't know if it was early or late. I we have discussed some. several 
It is 90s so bad. miniseries like, that Stephen King had done. The, and what did we conclude about that time era in his miniseries? Because I, I constantly bring up the Langoliers, and that's why I did not watch any miniseries oh from God, Stephen King. Stop doing so coke. <laughs> that's what happens. See, I was going to get off of drugs. Shit goes sour. Did he get off of drugs in the late 90s? I thought, it was, or the, in the yeah, early 90s? Yeah, he was, the early he was 90s, yeah. That was the, that's one of his things about when we mentioned the Needful Things. That book was written right after he got sober, like late 80s, early 90s, and he feels like it's one of his worst books because of the fact that I guess he didn't have, like, the, you know, the drug-fueled craziness going on. <laughs> I, um, I suppose. You, you know what you didn't realize? The, the movie Needful Things was about his, his needing coke. You just totally missed it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, it, it does. Uh, it it's it the miniseries goes back and it puts more of the uh, way or it puts the supernatural emphasis way back into it. You know, uh, it shows that Danny is for sure psychic. He has psychic abilities. Uh, so does Dick. Um, it it shows that uh, or it shows a different version of Wendy who's more confident. Uh, she's a better protector of Danny, and she's and she's uh, you know it, it's it plays her character up more uh, as a wife too to Jack and like you know than than Duvall's you know version. Um, it's and, and even hence like the novel does that maybe Wendy and and Jack both have a version of the shine because there's a line mentioned in both the novel and in the miniseries that they both have like their ability to read people in different ways. And, uh, and it's, it's assumed that that's where Danny got his abilities from is he inherited them from his parents. Cause that's the same thing with Dick. Dick said he got his, uh, abilities from his grandma. And so there was, you know, and that, and, and the theory is that the reason that Jack never really outright was a psychic in any way, shape or form is because he dulled his senses with alcohol for so long. And then whenever he went off the alcohol, it was, they were coming back and they helped feed the hotel, uh, in addition to Danny's own abilities and maybe even Wendy's. And that's what, and, and, you know, Dick never anticipated that all three of them would, would, you know, contribute to the manifestations, you know, becoming more real. So that's why he was a little bit more, you know, like he, he kind of played it off. He's like, well, these are just images, you know, when he's talking to Danny, they won't hurt you, but he didn't anticipate three psychics bringing them out. Yeah. Kind of the, the gist of the novel. Um, and in the miniseries, um, it's, I think, and, and of course, they, they changed a lot toward the end. It, it shows the original ending where Jack succeeds in st- stopping the ghost from, like, uh, uh, getting to the boiler. And the boiler, like, basically burns up the hotel and ends the, the overlook. And um, it also shows uh, Danny graduated from high school toward the end of it. And and Danny is, it's revealed that every time he sees Tony, Tony is him his future self, which is like the novel. And, uh, and it kind of... And something that it kind of goes away from the novel in a bit of a sense is it kind of gives more, uh, well, actually, this might be in the novel. It's been a while since I read it. But it shows Jack's spirit at Danny's uh, graduation, and he tells basically Danny that he loves him and he's proud of him. So it gives the resolution that, you know, obviously is not in the Kubrick film for reason, you know, for reasons that Kubrick had. Um I don't know. It, it depends. I mean, acting in the movie is like, you know, it, or in the miniseries is different. Obviously Weber was better at the sympathetic Jack, but he couldn't, I mean, couldn't pull off any of the, the, the you know, the, the villain versions. Uh, we don't have any of the, or I mean, Wendy is stronger, but then De Mornay is like, I don't know. She's, she's one of those women that's like, you know, no matter what she does, she, she's got some kind of sex appeal to her. And so there's a weird sexiness that she adds to the character. That's not really in the book. And I don't know. I, it's, 
it's kind of a weird, you know, like thing that's, that's thrown in there that I think just because she was the actress playing the part and then the Cortland Mead who plays the kid, he's, he's better than Danny Lloyd in a lot of scenes because Danny Lloyd's obviously not really given a whole lot to work off of. Yeah. Or at least not in my opinion. Um, but he's, he's a weird, like he's, he's terrible. in like a lot of his scenes too, like his acting is just so flat and awful, which is part of the problem that happens whenever you work with child actors, you either get a really good one, like Macaulay Culkin, or you get Cortland Mead, who's just kind of like, you know, there and kind of delivers his lines as flat as possible and doesn't really, you know, interact much. Um, but it, I don't, it's, if you want the match to the novel, it's way better in that sense, but the visuals, the acting, uh, the potential allegories that, that are there, they're all lost. Like it, King has none of the vision that Kubrick had like at all. Yeah. Um, you know what? I am going to say, cause I'm, I'm browsing through, you know, screen grabs of, you know, the shining mini series and they made a lot of the characters actually look like horror characters, like monsters. The Miss Massey in that is actually very well done, even to this day, as far as the effects, because they kind of did some kind of thing with the skin they applied to the actress that looks like it's, you know, like the kind of, like if you were like drowned, like a drowned victim, like how the skin would like, you know, wrinkle up. Yeah. But also at the same time, it's like super translucent and thin. Like it, it's, it's really creepy. Like they, they sell that element way better. I see in, Jack, in Jack, they, there's one scene where it's Jack screaming. He looks like a straight up dead like corpse attacking his wife his eyes are white his they're yeah. red around uh his teeth are all rotted he looks like a legit yeah. fucking monster there's a butler that looks like a fucking zombie and yes miss massey looks fucking horrific yeah they they really went far i mean but that was more like i said he was trying to tie more into the supernatural elements yeah and kubrick so that's why they they played that up more and then the the some of the stuff they and it helps Weber the fact they applied that stuff to him, but like, I mean, Jack uh, Nicholson is more, you know, he, he's more of a more scary and more terrifying just without the makeup. Applied, yes. Which yes. is, you know, a, a sign of how good of an actor he is. It's human horror and it's, well, it's more terrifying. You know, you know what the biggest thing that sells the shining consistently is not even so much the story. It's all the, the way that he does the way that, the music was laid out in this in the suspense building and oh, we'll the get scene to that. Cuts. Yeah, we're, we're gonna get to that. There's that's that's part. That's of the a discussion. whole <laughs> algorithm of the film, honestly. Yeah, that, if if you understand more than anything, that is what drives suspense more than anything. Um. So getting into the movie, I'll throw some trivia out there first. Uh, Kubrick was notorious for requiring excessive excessive number of takes for his scenes. Um, some say this was because he was perfectionist. Others argue it was because he was making the shit up as he went. And he honestly, and, and, and their argument is, is that he took so many takes because he made the movie in the editing room. Like he took a million different or, you know, a bunch of different takes. And then once he got the, or, you know, while he was editing, he was like, well, this is the route I want to go with. So let's use that take, you know, to kind of steer the narrative in this direction. Well, um, the, um, the hubby was talking about, and I've heard this and I'm sure you have as well. I'm sure it's part of our discussion, how Shelley Duvall, he, Kubrick constantly had her on edge. He was always fucking with her to keep her oh, scared the whole time. I mean, I've got that coming up. Yeah. I've got that coming up. And that makes sense <laughs> to what you're just saying right now, because if he, if he, if he were to actually piece together a film based off of different cuts he has, she constantly needs to be on edge. She constantly needs to be in the mode that she was in in the film. 
he didn't just do it to her. I'll get into that in a minute too. Oh, awesome. Um, <laughs> so he, he spent three days filming the here's Johnny scene. Oh my God. And that required 60 doors to film. And the reason it took so many is because they say that Nicholson was actually a former fireman before he was an actor, and he was so good at cutting those damn doors <laughs> down, and and that they and didn't break through them as slowly as as Nick or as uh, Kubrick wanted. That that's the reason they had to keep replacing them and have him go out a, a different way about bashing the door in. Um, uh, it took 127 takes to get the scene with Wendy walking backwards and fending off Jack with a baseball bat. That was a good scene. And I was expecting her to fall down, <laughs> and who knows? She probably did. That's probably why it took so many takes, but it was something about that specific scene that I was watching. I was like, this is good. It's like I'm expecting her to fall. She's not falling. She's swinging at him. She's terrified. I don't know. Something about that scene flowed really well. It. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's part of that perfection. I think he's a little bit of both. I think he was perfectionist, but he, he knew, but the perfectionist part of it was that he knew he could take the scenes later and, and work and work like a, a narrative around even just the individual scenes. Because when we start getting into discussions about this movie, I think the man loved layering uh, different meanings and sim- symbols in the things. And I, and I think that was the reason he did so many takes was because he could do that like yeah. after the, the movie was done. Um, the 127 takes was so many that actually made the Guinness Book of World Records. By Holy the way. shit. Um, Has anyone topped it yet? It took, <laughs> I'll Google uh, it. Around a hun- it took around 100 scenes or uh, takes for the scene with Dick and Danny talking about the shine and uh, with Jack throwing the tennis ball against the wall. And, um, and here's, and this goes along with what you were talking about where he, with the way he treated uh, Duvall after 40 takes of the Dick Halloran death, Nicholson had to actually step in and ask Kubrick to, to give the old man a break because Kubrick wanted 75 takes of that death scene, which they had to repeatedly set up for and go through, you know, with the ax going into his, I guess, like a prosthetic chest and all that. And uh, Carruthers, uh, uh, Scatman Carruthers reportedly broke down crying after the, after all these takes and begged the director to beg the director to tell him what he wanted him to do in the scene to make the scene work. Like that's how much he like broke the characters down by, or the actors down by making them like repeatedly do these things. Oh my God. Okay. So it, the, the shining has two world records, Guinness world records. Um, 127, obviously, for the stair scene. 148 for the shine scene with Danny and um, (laughs) Dick Halloran. Yeah. Holy fuck, dude. Now, the bleeding elevator only took three takes, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it took them nine days to set up and reset between each take, so it took 27 days to film that. And I'm assuming they had, like, a small makeshift room. Obviously, it wasn't done in the hotel. (laughs) Like I was like, that's got to be an enclosed room of sorts. I I would hope so. I mean, I don't know. I mean, uh, but he's crazy enough. He probably wanted it authentic and like filmed it somewhere, knowing him. I don't know. Who? Yeah. Um, uh, Shelley Duvall was definitely negged uh, by Kubrick throughout the entire filming process. He told the other cast members to keep her isolated, meaning that they couldn't associate with her outside of her scenes. He constantly yelled at her. And he even told her at one point that she was wasting everyone's time. 
she ended up crying so much during the or between her <laughs> scenes on film and the way that he treated her off off the camera that she became dehydrated and couldn't even cry at one point. Oh my god! She had to keep she had to keep bottles or she had to keep water around her to rehydrate to even be able to cry. Goddamn! The, the film, <laughs> which is the reason Nicholson has argued that she has uh, had her role in that movie, despite a lot of people giving it shit because all she does is scream and cry is probably one of the hardest that any actor or actress has ever done in, in film because of the fact that she gave so much to the scene and, and you know, and so much emotion. Yeah. Um, Stephen King, like I said, hates the film. Uh, he didn't like the fact that Jack was crazy before going into the Overlook uh, because, spoiler alert, Jack was kind of based on King at that point, you know, <laughs> a, a, a school teacher who's wanting to make it into writing, who's also addicted and, you know... Um, Wendy was also, he is went on record as saying is the most misogynistic portrayal of a character ever put to film because he, he's one of those people that argues that she just screams and cries and has no agency for herself. She does nothing else in the film. Um, hey, she dragged his he, body into the fucking closet and locked it. Well, she might have done more than that when we get to the Wendy theory. <laughs> Uh, she, uh, or King, uh, removed or didn't like the fact that Kubrick removed all the direct supernatural references in the movie. Uh, Kubrick is, uh, has said that, uh, as an atheist, uh, he thought that the movie was more interesting as a study of human psychosis versus just having it about ghosts. Um, and, um, and an interesting fact that I don't, it's crazy to think about. There were three other actors who were considered before Nicholson for playing Jack Torrance, uh, Robert De Niro was one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kubrick supposedly saw his portrayal in Taxi Driver and didn't think that he was psychotic enough after seeing that movie, which if you know anything about Taxi Driver, it's about a man that steadily goes crazy due to PTSD from the war and starts taking people out in mass. So that wasn't psychotic enough. Wow, okay. Um, yeah, I don't, my, I don't think my wife has ever seen that no. movie. I, I don't know if you'd <laughs> it's, like it's it. It's actually... It, it almost qualifies as a human horror film, honestly. My, my most favorite part is when he takes a girl on a date and takes her to the, the porn theater. And she's just like, <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> yeah, that's because he, he's like totally lost touch and that like that's his own way of connecting. Um, uh, the other rumor was is that Nero, De Niro actually did read the script but got such terrible nightmares from it that he refused the role. That's the other theory that floats around on the internet about that. Robin Williams was briefly considered for the character, <laughs> but Kubrick saw him and Mork and Mindy and said uh, that guy was too psychotic to play Nicholas. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I can see it. <laughs> and I can't even imagine. Can you imagine the genie from uh, uh, Disney's Aladdin playing Jack Nicholson? He would have been doing an impression a minute whenever he, like the here's Johnny, he would have broke into a whole Johnny Carson like impersonation at that point. <laughs> and went off the rails that way. Oh, my God. Um, the third actor who could have played Jack Torrance would have been Harrison Ford, of all people. No, that wouldn't have worked. It would have been too serious. <laughs> it wouldn't have been as... He, way too serious and too flat. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, Harrison Ford is more of a... Uh, he, he's he's a very... Cool He guy. doesn't emote very much yeah. at all, like in, in, in most of his movies. He has that cool guy feel to him. Yeah. Uh, the snow in the hedge maze, because I like throwing this in here. We've done it a ton for all these other movies that had snow scenes. Uh, didn't have the onions and stuff that we had in, uh, you know, the, like the, 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 the devil the and, devil Daniel, and Webster. Daniel Webster. But uh, they did use 900 tons of crushed styrofoam and salt to make that, that snow in the hedge maze. 
Wow. God damn. 900 tons. I mean, it um, looked like snow. It, it was really good. And and I, I like the salt part of it because, like we discussed in Legend, that's what they did to kind of give it that crystalline appearance. Like, yeah. You know, and where it, snow was, like, frozen overnight. I mean, I'm sure they have the sound effects and everything, but I'm pretty sure it makes for a pretty decent sound effect as well. Yeah, the crunching effect that yeah. along with it. Um, the blood coming out of the elevator was allowed in the trailer for all viewers because Kubrick convinced the MPAA it was rusty water instead of blood. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that. you know, they were mad when they watched the movie. Oh my god! Uh, how stupid! Sure <laughs> how stupid like, do you have to be? I'm sure they were sitting there watching the film, like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> That's about it, too, too. I mean, can you think about how they had to get some kind of authorization for that? They had a full-blown naked woman in the film, but they were worried about blood coming out of an elevator? Yep. Couldn't show that blood. Okay. Uh, which is funny because because most American films go the other way, and they don't yeah. want the nudity, but, you know, they're fine with the, the gore. With I'd the gore, with yeah. That's <laughs> okay. But this was, pri- I mean, this was right at the start of the 80s whenever it went the other way. And, like, you know, the slasher films went all gore. And, and you you know, if as soon as you showed any breast, you know, it, it you know. There you was a scene in The Exorcist in the 80s where she fucking pegs herself with a crucifix in the vagina. Yeah. yeah. And they're worried they, about they, blood uh, coming out of an elevator. Yep. They, oh, my they God. They allowed more things in the 70s. Makes no what sense. We, what can we say? Uh, the crew needed a map for filming in the hedge maze because it was so complicated and even got lost for two hours every time they filmed in there. That was a badass hedge maze. <laughs> they built that just for that movie, so it was Oh, they badass. built that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. And uh, we'll get into that, but it may or may not be based upon, like, Greek myth is kind of what the hint was about that, and Jack was the Minotaur. Um. There was an alternate ending to the film that actually released in the first week with the movie whenever it was put in theaters. Um, The scene started with Danny and Wendy in the hospital after escaping from the hotel, and they're visited by Ullman. Ullman basically tells uh, Wendy that they never found Jack's body, and and there was also no signs of anything abnormal that went on at the hotel. Um, He ends up asking them to stay with him uh, since they have nowhere else to go now. And as he is leaving, he he, uh, hands Danny the tennis ball from the hotel, and the movie goes to a black screen with text, kind of hinting that, you know, Ullman was in with the the spirits the whole time. Now, the the saying is is that Kubrick uh, had the theaters pull that ending after the first week of showing it and had most of the copies destroyed. And I think the reason is is because when he got to looking back at it, it added a little too much credence to the supernatural element. Yeah. And he and he wanted to pull back from that. And it was a cleaner ending to just show that, that scene zooming in on the, the picture that showed, you know, Jack from 1921, basically. Okay. Um, which is a... a that ending stands out way better. So he, he was yeah. having them pull that. It's got a good um, creep factor to it. Halloran passes by a wreck as he drives back to the hotel where a semi has crushed a red VW bug. And many think it's a fuck you to King from, uh, the, from Kubrick because the, in the original novel and in the, the shining miniseries, I believe the, the red Vita or the VW bug they drive to the hotel is red instead of yellow. Like it is in the movie. Ah, Okay. 
Um, this was one of the first major uses of Steadicam. A lot of the shots where you see were the, the big extended shots that like Noah was talking about in a previous episode where you kind of stay with the character and it's real smooth and it kind of follows along with the characters they're walking in the different rooms. That's one of the first few times that that was actually used in a movie. Um, and it was it's such a major part of the movie that King himself, even though he doesn't like the movie, actually referenced it in one of his novels, The Dark Tower, The Drawing of the Three, because one of the characters in the movie or in the book discusses whenever he is or uh, whenever he is seen through the eyes of another character, it's like he's he references that it's like watching the you know Danny on the the track as he's going through the hotel in The Shining. Um, and um, going into this a little bit uh, before this is more theory related stuff, but it works into the movie and kind of the trivia. This movie is one of the the most modern versions of mickey mousing uh, as far as the score goes of, of any or you know there's other movies that's used it since but this movie used it like way more than most other films in modern cinema because at the point that this movie was made it was an outdated uh musical or score philosophy and what mickey mousing is for uh, anyone doesn't know because i didn't know about this until i was researching all this is it's a score technique that was made popular in the old Mickey Mouse cartoons where every time that the actor or actress, or in this case, the cartoon character does an action uh, or they go to speak or something, the notes in the, the score match what they're doing, whether it be an up or a down, like, you know, tone or cadence or that sort of thing. Um, the most commonly associated that most people would recognize from the movie doing this is a scene where the here's Johnny scene where whenever, right after he says that Wendy and the score both does that up like shriek, like sound or whatever to kind of match what the actress is doing in the film. Um, they say that it's a, uh, and the theory is that it's used to by some is that it's being used to symbolize the unseen corruptive force of the overlook on the inhabitants. Uh, like when uh, Jack spasms in anger as he walks past the mirrors on his way to the the um, the the golden ballroom, uh, it, it, there's a little bit of a note uptake each time that he he jerks or whatever. The the the, the score kind of matches that. Uh, every time he throws the tennis ball, there's sharp notes to accompany that in the movie. Um, and they also used this one musical uh, piece called music for strings, percussion and Celesta by Bella Bartok three times throughout the film. And it's, and they use it in different ways throughout the different parts of the film. Like it, it's a, some, uh, the, the people who broke this down says it's like a symmetrical composition or a palindrome, like the notes, like ABC or repeated uh, CBA on the other side, like, you know, up and down and they, it's used during the hedge maze scene, and some people say that's to represent the symmetry of the maze. It's also used as Danny walks in the room, or toward room 237, and it's interesting because each action he takes as he's walking to the room is, is accentuated by the score at that point, uh, that, that musical piece. And uh, finally, it's used in the scene where Jack and Danny talk in, in, in the bedroom about uh, whenever Danny's asking for his fire truck and he's afraid of disturbing his father's sleep, um, then the interesting part about this is not only does Danny have Mickey Mouse actually on his shirt at this point, which might be hinting at the Mickey Mouse thing they're doing with a score, but uh, Danny and Jack's first comments uh, to each other sync up with the, the, the notes in that song uh, or that composition piece, 
And whenever Danny asked the question about whether they're safe in the hotel, there's this eerie little rise and fall of the, of the musical piece that kind of seem or some uh, seem to think simulates the hotel answering for Jack in that, that moment that, you know, that, uh, you know, as, as if the hotel is kind of corrupting him at that point and like, you know, kind of guiding his actions, even as he's talking to Danny. Um, now, wait a second. Era. With all this music, with all the syncing up of the musical score and everything, was this meant to be noticed or was this meant to be just something in the background? Because, like, when I've, I heard music in the film, but very little. And I even knew you had mentioned this to me before. So when I was watching the film, I had in the back of my head, okay, the score of the film kind of enhances the mood. But I'm going to be real honest with you. I didn't notice music at all during most scenes, which tells me that it was so well tied into what was happening that it was there. But in your psyche, you're just like, it just feels normal. It feels natural because it's going with how they're talking and how they're acting. The funny thing is the YouTube video I pulled this from, which I guess the guy's a musical major. He really breaks this down. And I'm going to have the notes all on the website with the episode talking about, you know, linking to this. Mm -hmm. But the guy actually breaks down how the movie, it, it's so synced up that you can't even imagine the movie without it because he plays a scene of Danny rolling through the overlook on his track uh, without the music. And it's just, you know, him, you know, rolling around. You can hear the sounds of the track on the, you know, which they even synced up or they made or different parts of that movie that sync up too, because there's a, there's a rug, there's bare floor, there's a rug, there's bare yes. floor. And every time, and, and that syncs up with the, the music perfectly every time that he I hits that I didn't even know surface. there was music in that scene. <laughs> I thought it was just but, him rolling through. Did you notice music? Yeah, that's the, that was the whole thing. The music builds the entire movie. I know it is, but I, for majority of the movie, even knowing this information, watching it last night, I did not notice a lot of music. You, like the movie itself isn't really scary if when you really think about it. It's it's all the clip, the intensity that gets built. Yeah, and that's all done through music. I'm aware of that, and I did so hear subconsciously the music at being built. No, and yes, and I am aware of that, and I, I noticed music only when I knew something's about to happen, like when Danny's getting ready to walk into 237, uh, when he's getting ready to see the twins. When I when something high anxiety is about to happen, yes, I noticed e it. But, but even when high anxiety is not about to happen. I didn't notice music at all. Like <laughs> with, like all of a sudden, like something seems like it's going to happen, and then it says Tuesday. Yeah. But all the audio build up to just saying Tuesday, was it's enough to build your suspense. Yeah. And there's tons of there's tons of times where nothing happens other than it's clipping to the I'm next sure day. I'm sure if I watched the film, I am positive if I watched the film without music, I would notice a difference. Well, last but night you're you're like falling asleep last night. That we was like towards it. the end of the film, though. Spoiler <laughs> alert: major snooze fest, everyone. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, no, but seriously, if I were to watch this film without the music, I'm sure I would notice and be like, "Well, this fucking sucks." But well, he, watching he, the film and knowing what I knew about the music, I'm telling you, I didn't notice a lot of musical score. I don't he, know if that's a good or bad thing. Scene. He shows that scene with the Grady twins or, or at the end of the hallway. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, he, he shows it without the music and he shows it with. And like, it's so, like, even the, like when Danny rounds the corner and, and right before the twins are even like revealed to the audience, you have that big rush of the, you know, the composition they're playing in the background that lets you know that you're about to see something horrific, you know, even as Danny sees it. It's like, you know, like bam, bam, like the audience and the character gets to, you know, realize it at the same time. And, Did you and, and send that YouTube link to me? Leads you into that. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll send that. Okay, send that to me because I'm going to have to compare the two because I know <laughs> I'll notice a difference, but I was trying to know. You, you know me with every film that we watch. I always try to 
notice the score, and it's very rare that I do. So here's, here's I don't know how you didn't notice it. Like it's the, a Raina thing. It, but th- that's what builds the entire suspense. I'm in the movie. aware of that. <laughs> Here's the interesting thing about that Danny and Jack scene, which is creepy in many ways when we start discussing these other uh, theories, theories. Uh, where they're in the room together and he's got Danny on his lap and he's talking to him. That scene was never, or Kubrick originally intended for that scene to be totally without music at all. Whenever the editor was doing the cut of the movie, he, he went back through there and when he's adding that Bartok uh, composition piece to other parts of the movie, he just so happened to notice how much it synced up with that scene that he added it in like that was something he noticed after. And it was just such a perfect fit that it works. Like it's almost supernatural that it worked the way that it did in the movie. Like it, he, he just, he happened upon it kind of like the, you know, the whole thing about the wizard of Oz and, you know, uh, dark side of the moon type of like, you know, sinking up. It was one of those moments. Yeah. See, I, um, the, the, the part when they're in the, the room together, Jack and his son, that part was, it was creepy for the reason that I, I think what, what's supposed to be happening is that his son can read his dad's mind and he realizes like, Holy shit, this dude's going up to deep end. That, that, that's the way I was viewing it is if he has the shining, then he does have the ability to reach into people's mind to a degree. And he's, he, if, if you go by that theory, we'll get into that, that it may not be the case, but yeah, if he has the shine, then that's what he's supposed to be seeing. And yes, he real And it's funny in that scene, he's asking his dad about sleeping and his dad says that he can't sleep. And it's funny that the sequel is called Dr. Sleep. And, you know, Danny is Dr. Sleep. And, the, and you know, that's what his title becomes, like, you know, later on in life. So it's kind of weird that that, that, that moment, you know, kind of leads into the sequel in, in a roundabout sense. Well, um, yeah, I mean, the sequel probably, you know, they obviously worked itself around that really well. Right, yeah. Well, I mean, and King, you know, despite his hatred for it, he, he worked that into it. So I, I think, you know... Um, now the other thing is too, is that, that Kubrick used the music in another way to distance the audience from what was happening on screen. And what I mean by that is that there were several scenes shot in the movie where the music they played in the, in particular, the hotel dance scene where Jack is in the ballroom and all the guests are there. Yeah. The music that they shot for Nicholson, uh, to play in the background while he was doing the scene is not the music they used in the film. They completely cut that music out and they reduced it. That one piece that's in the movie, kind of that old 1920s. Uh, uh, yes. And I, I, I wished I remember the, but they, they reused that, that song actually even in toy story three of all things. It was like playing during the, the creepy doll section of that movie or whatever, when they're in the, you know, that, that part of the movie. Uh, but I mean, that was worked in after. And the fact that the audience is seeing him dancing to a song that wasn't even a song he was dancing to to begin with adds, you know, a lot of people point out that it adds to the whole thing that or, or is what you're seeing actually what is going on in the movie or are you being fed a, a, a you know, a, a narrative that's maybe not, you know, told by a reliable narrator basically is what they're saying. Uh, I think like the, the song is he, called Midnight, the Stars and You. Yes. It's a Foxtrot type and, song. Uh, so it, it kind of, I mean, it kind of lends credence to the fact that, you know, what you're seeing or what, you know, Jack might be seeing is not exactly what the truth is. And that, you know, the fact that he's swaying to a song that's not a song that's actually there. And you're listening to music that wasn't there whenever he was listening to it. It's like two or three layers of like, you know, unreliable narrator at that point. Yeah.